I'm turning this evening to the book of Matthew, chapter number 8. Matthew, chapter number 8. And we'll be looking this evening at verses 28 through 34. Uh, Matthew, chapter number 8, beginning in verse 28, uh, down through verse number 34. And tonight we'll be dealing with, I think will be some, there will be some familiarity with this particular text. Uh, this is commonly known as the, uh, the portion where the demons are cast out of two individuals who are possessed with devils. And uh, we understand that uh, our Lord had gone over to the other side of uh, the country of Gadara, uh, Gersergenes, and he meets two possessed with devils. And we see that there in the first verse there, verse 28. Uh, in the country on the other side, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs exceeding fierce so that no man might pass by that way and behold they cried out saying what have we to do with thee jesus thou son of god uh, that expression that statement the question that these demons make uh, they acknowledge even in their demonic activity they acknowledge jesus as the son of God. Uh, it is indeed possible for an individual, or in this case, uh, demons, to uh, call Jesus the Son of God and yet still have no desire to have anything to do with Him. Uh, this should not be taken as some demonstration of belief uh, or some demonstration of faith. Uh, but rather, this is an acknowledgement of that which cannot be denied, that Jesus is the Son of God. Of course, we'll look at that expression in greater detail in just a few moments. But we understand just from the story here that these demons uh, had no desire uh, to make Christ uh, their king. They had no desire to make Christ their ruler. Uh, as a matter of fact, we find out that in many ways these demons were being brought to this very place in order that Jesus would exert his power over them and demonstrate that even those demons uh, could not possess uh, an individual uh, without his divine permission. Uh, so there is much to learn in this particular account. And we know uh, that the Lord has uh, brought his disciples over. Uh, we dealt with uh, the, the last part of verses 27, uh, or verse 23 through 27, uh, not last week, but the previous week uh, when we dealt with Jesus stilling the storm and the disciples on the ship uh, asking, what manner of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. So even the disciples were marveled by uh, what Jesus could do. But in this country or in this place where we now find Jesus, this uh, is identified as a place that is uh, the same that is mentioned in Genesis and Deuteronomy and Joshua, which was the home of the Girgashites. And it is where Joshua drove them to out of the land of Canaan. And so these are, uh, in, this is a place that is not uncommon to Bible history, uh, but nevertheless, this is a place uh, that is now, uh, we remember it for this possession of these two demons. 
this is a, a, a city that was very near uh, Tiberias, and so that's where we find these demons being cast out. Uh, we do see a little bit of a difference between the account in Mark and Luke and Matthew. Uh, in Mark and Luke, with this account, there is the mention of just one person that is possessed with, a, with the devil. Uh, Matthew says that there were two. Uh, it is... It is uh, uh, it's not a contradiction per se. They only mention one of them, as if in Mark and Luke maybe there were two, but they only talk about one of the two. So there's not a contradiction here. Matthew is identifying that there are, in fact, uh, two that are possessed with these demons. Uh, maybe Mark and Luke uh, only mention it because they only took notice of one of the two. Uh, but some commentators have said maybe they, one of them was more fierce than the other. Maybe one was uh, more aggressive than the other. But yet Matthew mentions both of these demons. Uh, but notice that this conversation that's happening with them, it, it says that they were in fact possessed with devils. Uh, they were coming out of the tombs and they were in fact exceeding fierce so that no man could pass by that way. Uh, so this is in fact a true picture of a possession. Uh, often people throughout history have said, was this really uh, two individuals uh, possessed with, a, with real demons? Uh, yes, they were really possessed. And this is really uh, a, uh, this is not to be understood as a natural disease or an illness. They were possessed with demons. Uh, Jesus is not here by accident. We know that everything is being done for a purpose. He's not here by randomness. Just as he had told the disciples they were going to go across, they went, they, they, in, they uh, came up against the storm that Jesus was fully aware of. This is not a shock that Jesus gets here and finds these two men uh, possessed with these demons. There is a design in what Jesus is getting ready to do. Um, Satan, of course, and his demons uh, were not uh, aware that Jesus was going to be arriving in this place at that particular time. Uh, so there is this, this uh, principle here that um, they had no idea that he was coming. Uh, they were not prepared for his arrival. Uh, so as Jesus shows up uh, on the scene here, uh, they certainly probably would have done all they could do to get away from him, uh, but they certainly did not. Uh, this is an example of this is not a chance meeting, I believe, that this is a direct uh, work of the providential hand of God in this, that Jesus would come face to face with these two uh, demon-possessed uh, men. rather. So it does tell us that they were in fact possessed. Uh, they were coming out of the tombs. Uh, these tombs uh, were, as it sounds, they were burying places. They were places that were on the outside of cities. They were some distance away. We're not told exactly how far away it was. Uh, but Luke actually says that the possessed that met them was out of the city or a good way off from it. Uh, these tombs were never constructed near a city. They were always set away uh, to, to, to suggest that this, these were to be set far away from the city. But these were not the tombs in which we think of. We think of a cemetery and we think of a, of a, a, a 
a particular size, uh, bearing six feet under and certain width and certain length. These would have been large tombs. These were, these were large tombs that were big enough that people could go inside of them, could come and go. And as a matter of fact, they were large enough that people, if need be, could dwell in them. They could live in them if need be. So these were not uh, small places. But they certainly, that's where these uh, demon-possessed men come from. And so they are said that when Jesus arrives, that they come out of these tombs. Uh, they're described as being exceeding fierce. They are exceeding fierce. Uh, this means that they were the picture of wickedness. They were the picture of uh, malice. Uh, there was nothing good in them. This, this was not uh, something that we could look at and say this, these were, these were uh, demons uh, that were up to something good. Uh, they are, uh, the, the, the idea of a person being possessed with a demon certainly conjures up all sorts of things in our mind about what that might look like. Uh, but these, these men are described that they were so fierce that nobody could pass by that way. I, I have in my mind's eye that as even people tried to walk by these tombs, that uh, maybe there was even some sort of an attack on those individuals. Uh, but it certainly says and shows the influence that a demon can have on an individual. Um, so this is something uh, exceedingly fierce. Uh, nobody could pass by uh, without being hurt. Uh, notice the first thing that is said is that Jesus does not speak to them first, but yet these demons cry out to Jesus. Jesus has not spoken a word yet. He has just simply arrived on the scene, and here is a demonstration of the power of Christ even before he speaks a single word. The demons themselves cry out, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Uh, this is beginning a wonderful instance of the power that Christ has over the devils. Uh, this is a picture of how even just simply in the presence of Jesus uh, brings up in these demons... Uh, the fact that there is an acknowledgement, an admission that they understood that this Jesus had power to command them. Uh, this is not a, a two-way or a two-sided war here that's beginning. This is the demons identifying that they know the authority of Christ. They know that they cannot stand against him. These devils had taken possession of these men. There's no question. They made these men cruel. They made these men wicked. Uh, they made it so that nobody could pass by them. Yet upon the very sight of Jesus Christ, these demons immediately acknowledge, what do we have to do with you or what are you doing here? It speaks... Uh, greatly about what Jesus is getting ready to do. These demons are not speaking out again in some act of faith. They're not speaking out in some sort of desire to make Christ their king, to make Christ their Messiah, but rather they are crying out because they know the authority of Jesus and his words. They are, sub they are subject unto him. Uh, this is 
a, a site, an event that certainly for a, a person standing by must have been something to actually see. Yet this question, what have we to do with thee? Uh, Jesus, thou son of God, the reality is, is these demons uh, really uh, wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, they're not interested in his grace. They're not interested in his righteousness. And they're certainly not interested in his saving mercies. Uh, just because these demons identify him as the son of God doesn't mean that Jesus is their savior. He's their savior. Uh, on the contrary, uh, what did he have to do with them is the very thing these demons dread the most. What he had to do with them is that he's not going to leave them alone. Uh, the demons wanted to be left alone. The demons did not want to be bothered by the Son of God. They wanted to be left alone to their possession of these two individuals. Uh, they understood that Jesus could, in a moment, could remove them from their host. And there's nothing preventing Jesus from calling out these demons, and the demons know it. They know there's nothing they can do to prevent this. There's nothing they can do to stop it. There's nothing they knew because they knew that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Uh, they knew who he was. Uh, the demons knew about his divinity. They knew about his father. That's why they refer to him as the Son of God. You know, we've seen scripturally where even the demons can know who Jesus is and they hear the name of Jesus and they tremble. They tremble because they know there is no chance that they have to continue in their possession. And yet, they have not even heard his voice yet. Folks, I find it quite remarkable that even Jesus' presence, without a single word being spoken, these demons know their time is up. They know that there's not a thing they can do. There's nothing they can stop. And all they say that indicates of some level of an understanding is that they say, Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Uh, they had something in mind here. They had something that they wanted to know. Why are you here now? Now, this is not some random time. It's not some random idea. This is what the devils are apprehending. This is, what they, this is what they understand. They understand Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge. They understand that Jesus Christ is ultimately the one that has all authority, has all the power. They know that it's Jesus who's the one that's going to send them into everlasting punishment. They know that. The time reference has to do with, is it time? You're here before the time of judgment. Remember how we hear, it sometimes it becomes a Christian cliche, Satan knows he's a defeated foe. The demons know it. They know that they are seated in judgment of Jesus Christ himself. And there's not a thing they can do about it. They can't stop it. Here's the thing. These demons are not claiming innocency in any way, shape, or form. They're not saying we don't deserve that judgment. They're not saying we don't deserve this punishment. They're not even remorseful about it. They just know that it's coming. 
Even the demons know that they deserve and expect fully that this time of casting out into everlasting punishment is coming. Now what I believe they actually understand here is they understand that whatever they're getting ready to endure right now is not the full torment which is yet to come. They're speaking about the time or the day of judgment. I can say with certainty that the demons know that they have an appointment at the judgment of God. They already know it's, it's coming. There's a day that is appointed, the day of judgment when they will be judged. But yet there is, even at a distance, there is this notion that they're complaining about Christ being there now. It's almost as if, why are you bothering us now? Let us alone. The time of judgment's not now. We should be able to, to possess this man. It's not your time yet. And yet, they try to converse with him about this day of judgment. Now, it may very well be they understood the time that they had proposed to themselves to stay in these men in which they had possessed. But there's also a conclusion I think these demons are drawing. They realized they're only there by the permission of God. They're only there by the permission of God. Remember when, when God allowed Satan to, in effect, torment Job. The only reason that Job was enduring what he was enduring is because God gave him permission to torment Job. And he even gave him the parameters. He said, you can touch everything, but you cannot touch his life. You can touch every aspect of Job's life, but you can't take his life. These demons realize that nothing, nothing could give them more torment than understanding that they are going to be turned out by the authority of God. They're going to be restrained and kept from doing any more harm. Now there may, there's been some commentators that I read this week who suggested that the demons also might have had an understanding about just the preaching of the gospel itself. That the setting up of the kingdom of Christ among the Gentiles, that maybe the devils had some hint of that. Maybe they had some understanding of that. But it seems to me that there seems to be the observation that it's more on the judgment day. Again, I don't know if I would argue with a person to the death about whether or not they meant the setting up of the kingdom or they meant absolutely judgment day, what it is that they meant. But they certainly knew that their time was limited. I think that's a fair conclusion. They knew their time was limited. But then look what it says. And there was a good way off from them, a herd of many swine feeding. A good way off from them, again, we're not given the exact distance, we're just given the idea that it was a great distance. Uh, Mark says it was on the mountain. Luke mentions that it was a distance, but bordering on the seashores, the idea he gives. But we see here that there's this these swine, these, these pigs, if you will, and these herds that are being kept. Now we know, and we could get into a lot tonight about uh, 
the, 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 the laws against uh, the Jews specifically and the eating of the swine. Uh, they were not, in many of the uh, laws itself, uh, they were not allowed to eat the swine, but they were allowed to raise the swine in order to uh, sell it to the Gentiles. But they, this was a common animal. This was a common thing to see. But you see what is happening here. They, before again, Jesus has not spoken a single word. And look what they say. The devils besought him saying, if thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. These demons know uh, they cannot stop what Jesus is getting ready to do. And it's quite peculiar that they ask to be sent into those swine. Again, some have suggested there are a lot of illustrative pictures going on here. That they're being sent into the swine because of the, uh, the, the mosaic laws and the laws of God to not eat the swine's flesh. And then, of course, the, the Jews added to it but that was to demonstrate uncleanness. So there's a lot of things that we could say about that. But again, notice the devils besought him. However many, however big this legion of was, whether it was one, whether it was two, however many demons there was, they were understood that they were obligated that upon Jesus' command, they had to leave. They didn't ask to be sent out of the country. They didn't ask to be sent somewhere else. They asked to be sent into the swine. If thou cast us out of these men, is what they're saying. Or you cast us out of this place. You remove us from there. It's almost as if they are, they've reserved themselves to the reality. Look, if this is what has to be, if this is what's going to happen, then send us into the swine. They, they are asking for Jesus' permission to enter into the swine, which tells us they can't even enter into a pig without his permission. They're asking him for permission to enter in. They're acknowledging that Jesus Christ has power over them. Without his permission, they cannot even as much as hurt the swine. Now that ought to be comforting. That ought to be comforting to us as the Lord's people. Understanding the devil's power is immense. The devil's power is great, but please also understand that his power is limited. It's limited by the permission of God. And it really shows us and gives us an example of really how this situation is being done. These, these demons know that there's a day coming when they will be tormented more than they are now, and they know it. They know the great judgment is coming. They know that they cannot even enter into a hog without permission of, by God. They know they can't go into another person. They know all of these things. And yet they say, if you cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. 
Now in this whole conversation in verses 28 through 34, Jesus says one word. He says, go. It's pretty remarkable. In all these verses, Jesus never says anything but go. (laughs) And yet the devils were coming to all of these conclusions without him ever saying a word. He didn't give them instructions and say, look, what I'm going to do next, demons, is I'm going to cast you out. And when I cast you out, I'm going to send you over to the swine. They're asking for the permission to be sent over there. The possession in which the devil, the demons are getting, is ultimately for their destruction. All these devils, this request shows the weakness of their their inferiority. They know they're not able to do anything without the superior power of Christ. And they acknowledge it. Now we could try to describe just how wicked, how evil is a demon. I mean, I don't even know if our minds can comprehend the wickedness of what a demon is doing. But imagine the mischief that they're causing. Imagine the trouble that they're causing into the bodies and the souls of these men in which they are currently residing. We think a lot that the the devils, why did the the devils desire to go into the herd of swine? Again, commentators vary on this. One put it this way, that the devils desired to go into the herd of swine because of the filthiness of those creatures. These impure spirits delight in what is impure. Or maybe out of the pure hatred to the inhabitants of this country who, because they could no longer hurt their persons, would destroy their goods. There's a lot of things happening. Remember, these swine, they belonged to somebody. It was someone's source of income. That's how they made their money. And that's what's going to lead to partly the response we see that instead of this town and these people being thankful for Jesus being there, they're going to say, we don't want anything to do with you either. Which is not the conclusion you think you're going to get. You would think Jesus calling out two demons and sending them into a herd of swine. You Wouldn't you think that they would create a crowd of people who would stand on that cliff and applaud and say, Jesus, thank you for removing these demons and destroying them by running them into the swine, running them over a cliff into the sea. But the exact opposite happens. It may certainly be that part of this in the providential hand of God, as he sends these demons into the swine, in a way, it is going to raise up in the people Again, this is one of those mysteries of God that the people would actually despise him for what he just did. He says unto them, go. He gave the demons leave. He told them to go. As I mentioned, the case of Job without divine permission, Satan could not touch Job. Without divine permission, these demons could not move out of the men and into the swine without his permission. 
Now, it's a fearful thing. People of God, it's always a question that comes up. Ministers are always asked this question. Can a child of God be possessed? Can people today be possessed? But you understand, why did Christ in the first place, why did He allow the devils to enter into the herd of swine? Why would He have done this? He did it and it destroyed them. And yet it seems as if He is not compassionate because He knows this is going to be a considerable loss to these people. They're going to lose their livelihood because when these swine go over there, they're going to lose their livelihood. It would be similar to, to destroying a fisherman's nets or destroying a fisherman's boats and saying, now you have no source of income. Would Jesus, in fact, have done this with some level of intent to set people against Him? Now, that goes how far you take this into the providence and the sovereignty of God Maybe that's why there certainly was not an applause at the end, but a spite for what he had done. Now, if these owners were in fact Jews, which there is reason to believe that these owners were Jews, these animals were being raised up for food. And if they were in fact breaking the law of God, which with regard to the swine that was being sold to others, Maybe this was a proper rebuke that Jesus is saying, you should not have been doing this in the first place. You're breaking the laws of God. You're breaking your own laws. But if the owners were Gentiles on the other side, maybe it was to show the Gentiles just how evil the demonic spirits, the demonic spirits actually were. And that it would display his power by saying, I remove those demons from those individuals, put them into swine, sent the swine over the hill to demonstrate his power. Certainly, whichever way you look at this, Christ is demonstrating he has power over the devils and he has the sovereign right to determine to whom and for whom and for what purpose or to what purpose he does that. So does Jesus Christ have a right to do something to set people up against him? Some denominations would say, no, he doesn't have a right to that. He only has a right to show them his goodness. But did he have a right to intentionally do this, to take away the livelihood of those owners if they were Jews, or to show the Gentiles his power to simply set them up against him? If we believe God is sovereign, then He certainly does. Because if He's truly sovereign, then He can use any means necessary to establish who He is. Does He have the right to dispose of people's goods and properties at His command? Yes. One of the reasons people don't like the total sovereignty of God is because we don't like God meddling in our business. We don't like God to be able to, at his own authority, at his own disposal, without our permission, to take away or to give. Just as he has the right to show his mercy to whom he'll show mercy. Right? Romans 9. He has the right to show mercy to whom he'll show mercy. That most avoided chapter in all the Bible because we don't want to deal with what the reality of what he's saying is. 
Does the clay have control over the potter? No, the potter has control over the clay to mold that and make it, to mar it, to use some for this and some for that, some for vessels of honor, some for vessels of dishonor. We could just simply look at this and we could remove all of that and just simply say this was just a removal of a couple demons out of a couple possessed men, sent them into the pigs and sent them over the hill. Or we could say there's much, much more going on here than just that. I imagine after this quote-unquote miracle took place, I imagine word got out quite quickly about what had happened there. Notice it does tell us that the whole, when they were, when they were come out of the men, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the waters, and they that kept them fled. So we do know that there were people who, uh, there were, they were watchers over those swine. There were, there were people who were taking care of them and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, again, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. Not trying to be cute, but nobody's inviting Jesus to dinner. Nobody is saying, thank you for removing these demons. Remember, they were two possessed men, but we don't know how many demons were in each one of those men. This could have been legions of devils that were inside of these men. You would think there would be a gratefulness. Well, what does it tell us about what's most important to man? Well, we see the real existence of those evil spirits. We see the real truth of possessions. We see that these devils do have the ability to destroy. But what about the hearts of the people? What about man's corruptions? What does man really want more than anything else? Does man really want the Son of God or does man want his possessions? Does man really want Christ as their authority or does, do they want their possessions? This whole herd of swine runs to its destruction along with the demons that possess them. It says they perished in the waters of the sea. These men who were keepers, their employment, uh, this was not a job that a person aspired to, to be a hog keeper, if you will. That's what they were. They're amazed by what they see. They're distressed at what they see. They see the loss. Remember, their responsibility was to be in charge of that. And here, they, maybe they're doing it on behalf of their master. And their master's possessions have just run over the cliff. Certainly, their level of distress, they run away. Some certainly go into the city. Some go into the country. Some go far. Some go near. Christ's fame now begins to explode about what's just happened. It says they tell everything. They, see, they tell about what they saw. They tell about what they heard. 
Imagine the story they must have had to tell. We were standing there keeping the hogs as we do every single day. And suddenly we see these two uh, demon-possessed men standing with this Jesus. And suddenly we see this violent episode where all of the swine now runs down over the hill and perishes. They certainly must have been affected by that. And certainly they were probably concerned what their masters were going to say when they went back home and reported Your herd is gone. Now, folks, I think you really got to dig into this and really think about when they went back and those men reported that to their employers, their masters, and had to tell them they're gone. The story was spread far and wide enough that verse 34 says that the inhabitants, the whole city, now, I think we're, I think we're biblically literate enough to know that it doesn't mean every single individual of every single house and town, but it's the great number of people came out. A great number of them. Luke says the whole multitude of the country. It's, 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 it's to tell us that there was a large crowd of people who were standing there and witnessed this. And what we're told is that not a single one says, Jesus, thou son of God, will you stay? But rather, they besought him that he would depart. It's interesting to hear an argument in our society today says, you know, people, for the most part, for the most part, they're good. Without the opening of our eyes, None of us want anything to do with Jesus Christ. We don't want anything to do with him. And we look at this story and we say, what is the matter with all these people? Why do they want him out of there? Because if it were not for the grace of God, we would be standing on that same precipice, looking over that cliff and saying to this man, we don't want you here. When they came out to meet Jesus, it says... Now, for the believer, that sounds like a beautiful meeting. To come out to meet our Lord, to come out and meet Jesus, to come out and see Him. We would be going to Him out of love, out of humility. We would be going there to invite Him and say, you know, please come into our home. We would be out there to receive Him kindly. We would treat Him with honor. We would treat Him with respect. We would reverence Him. We might even go out there just for curiosity's sake. But most of those people that went out to meet him went out there and were terrified at the report that they had heard about what had happened. Many of them were probably distressed over everything that they had just lost. They connected the fact that Jesus came and we lost everything. What does man hold most dear? Man holds most dear that which is dearest and nearest to his heart. These were the possessions. These possessions in which he had already taken, maybe they thought if we don't get rid of him, something far worse is going to happen. 
When they saw him, they wanted him to depart. Now, remember the story of the centurion? What did the centurion say? He said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come to my house. This was not them saying, Christ, you're so worthy. We can't even be in your presence. This was an all-out rejection of his very presence. Even Peter, when he made the statement, depart from me, I am a sinful man. This is not what they were doing. They were not acknowledging some worthiness in, in Christ and unworthiness in them. They did not want to suffer any further punishment They were very much conscious of what was happening here. They hated more than anything the presence of Christ. And think about this. They so desired Christ's presence to leave them, they would rather have Him gone than to cure any other ailments in town to remove any other demons that might have been in town think about this now everybody has we've been reading and saying if we could see these miracles if the person could see the miracles of christ wouldn't everybody want him the exact opposite takes place jesus performs a miracle and nobody wants him I hear people today say, if I could just see Jesus perform a miracle, if he would just come and show a miracle to my loved one, if he would just come and show a miracle to this, then I know they would believe. These people wanted nothing to do with him. They preferred their possessions and they preferred their own sin to the presence of Christ. They would rather live in sin with their possessions than have the presence of Christ. We'd rather not have Christ than have sick people and dying people and have no miracles than to have the presence of Christ. We start off by saying the demons were awful wicked people, or awful wicked spirits rather, and they didn't want him. And we say, but can man ever be that wicked to where man would say, I don't want you? Here's an example of where I don't want you. And I so fear your presence, I would rather you just depart altogether. It really is a picture of not only God's power over the demons and over all of creation, but it also shows us a great picture of just how wicked and depraved the human heart can be. All done under the providential sovereign hand of God. Next week, we'll get into Jesus continues a journey. He's going to pass over again. And he's going to come into the presence of a man sick of the palsy, a man on, the be- on, a, on a cot, on a bed. And he's going to make that very familiar statement about the ability to be able to forgive sins. And give the illustration that is it, is it any more for the 
Son of God to be able to tell a person to arise and walk or to simply say to a person, your sins are forgiven. So we'll talk about that lesson next week. Let's pray together, then we'll close with a hymn. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. And Lord, what a narrative in the word of God. There are so many lessons and so many, so many principles that can be gleaned from this passage. But Father, the one thing that comes to my mind is the thanksgiving that you opened our eyes and you opened our ears to be able to see and to hear and made us willing to believe the great truths of your word. Father, may we never take this for granted and understand that it was your sovereign plan to redeem us. It was your plan to save us. And Lord, we are challenged by the reality that even if Jesus Christ today could, would be here in human form and bodily presence and would perform miracles on every corner of every town in every country in the world, there would still be those that would demand and desire his removal because they simply do not want Christ's presence in their life. Father, may we glorify you with everything that we are and everything that we say and do. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Let's conclude with the hymn we'll stand as we end our time this evening. 401, Hiding in Thee. Hymn number 401.